So we're coming into chapter 3. We're not going to look at the, all the verses in, cha- in chapter 3. Sorry. Uh, but we're going to particularly look at verses uh, 3 to, through to 8. But, um, so if you've got that chapter open in front of you, um, we've put it in the context of the whole chapter. Now, I can remember when I was uh, in London... Um, hearing about uh, a, a British um, MP who attended the uh, parliamentary prayer breakfast at West, in Westminster. And uh, his name is Gary Streeter. And, and he, said, he said this, my prayer is that as a nation, we would shift from being obsessed with looking good and feeling good to being good and doing good. Now, I don't know anything about Gary Streeter, I presume he was, he's some kind of a professing Christian to be in a parliamentary prayer breakfast. But I think that's a great prayer, isn't it? He's saying, my prayer is that as a nation we would shift. We are, being, we are obsessed, aren't we, with, with image. Our politicians have spin doctors to make them look good. We're obsessed with that, with, with looking good and, and then feeling good. What's, what's in it for me? What does this do for me? And he's saying, my prayer is that we would shift from that, from looking good and feeling good to being good and doing good. Now, and I, and I'm going to ask the question this morning, how does that shift happen? That's Paul's concern here in, in Titus, throughout the whole book of Titus, but particularly here in chapter 3. Look at verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is something you can really rely upon. And I want, I want you, Titus, to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then in verse 14, at the end of the chapter, he says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that there's been a massive decline in in public decency and morality in recent years, and it's accelerating rapidly. How do you turn that around? How do you produce people who are eager to do what is good, who are proactively looking for opportunities to serve others, to live productive and useful lives? How, 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 How does that come about? Can you legislate for it? Will education do it? Will Christian values in the schools do that? C.S. Lewis said, you can educate the devil, but all you get is a clever devil. How do you make people good? Or or to put it in terms of this passage that I hope you've got open in front of you in Titus chapter 3, how do you get from verse 3 through to verse 8? Look at it with me. We'd all like to think, you see, that we live in in verse 8, don't we? That we live excellent productive, useful lives, that we're all unselfishly devoted to doing what is good and what's best for others. But the reality is that most of the time we live in verse 3, don't we? Enslaved by all kinds of passions and lusts, living in malice and envy, hatred and jealousy. Uh, Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, talks about uh, an occasion when he he shared a meal with two scientists who just emerged from a, a, 
a glass-enclosed biosphere uh, near Tucson in Arizona. Four men and, and four women had, had volunteered for a two-year experiment. They were all accomplished scientists. They'd all undergone psychological testing and gone through a whole battery of tests in preparation for this experiment. Uh, they'd all entered the, the biosphere fully briefed on the rigors that, were, that they would face, but sealed off from the outside world for two years, just the eight of them. But within a matter of months, the eight bionauts, as they called themselves, had split into two groups of four. And during the final months of the experiment, the two groups absolutely refused to speak to one another. Eight people living and working in a little bubble divided by an invisible wall of hostility. That's our world in microcosm, isn't it? That's the reality, isn't it? You, it's what you see on reality TV shows. When you bring people together and throw them together like in Big Brother or something like that. That's what you see, malice, envy, hated and hating. It's human nature, isn't it? And what happens when, uh, you know, someone gets promoted over your head at work? It's congratulations all around and drinks down at the pub, but soon the knives come out. That's human nature. Malice and envy, hated and hating, foolish, disobedient and deceived. And, and he, you notice what he says, enslaved by all kinds of, of passions and pleasures. Enslaved by pleasures. Uh, we live just up the hill from uh, Rest Point Casino, which is Australia's first casino. And there's a great road going down from our house, Rebendy Road, <laughs> down to Rest Point Casino. And sometimes we go down there. The, the schools have speech nights there in, 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 in that, in that uh, place. And uh, there's some great restaurants, great cafes there in Rest Point. But, you know, it's quite depressing. To, to, to go to a restaurant, there you have to walk past the gaming rooms and, and, and uh, the, the pokey machines. And, and it's mainly, uh, it seems to be mainly middle-aged or elderly there like zombies. It's like one of those antechambers to Dante's Inferno, I think. <laughs> I mean, what are they doing? You know, they're just sitting there all the time. They're playing the pokies. But really, the pokies are playing them, isn't that right? Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. So we'd like to think that we, we live in, and we aspire to live in verse 8, don't we? But most of the time, we live in verse 3. And you notice Paul actually puts himself in there as well, doesn't he? In verse 3, you see what he says? We too. I'm so glad that Paul puts himself in there because I'm tempted to take myself out of that. Paul, the, the church boy. The proud, pious, clean-living Pharisee. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Dawn and literary scholar, says in, in his autobiography, um, his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Joy was his wife's name, and I'm sure she often surprised him, but this was about his conversion. Surprised by Joy. He says this, when he, after he was converted, after he came to know the Lord Jesus, he said, for the first time I examined myself with a serious practical purpose. And that's what happens when you, you're converted, isn't it? You begin, you begin to know yourself. You begin to understand who you are. And he said, I, I began to examine myself with a serious practical purpose. And there, he says, I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, 
a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. <laughs> I wonder if you've made that discovery about yourself yet. See, we're all, we're all there. We're all in the same boat. Oxford Don, proud, pious, uh, proud, pious Pharisee, pagan Cretans. We're all in the same boat. Paul puts himself in that boat. And it's called the Titanic, and it's going down fast. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That is the state of humanity. That is human nature. So what's to be done? How do you get out of verse 3 into verse 8? And of course, the answer is obvious, isn't it? You have to go through verses 4 to 7. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to briefly verses verses 4 to 7. And uh, as we do so, you'll notice three things. Three things that, that God does for us. Three things that we can't do for ourselves. First, he regenerates us by his Holy Spirit. You see that there in verses 5 and 6? Here again is this, this word epiphany, you know, which we've been looking at yesterday in Titus. It's the fourth time it appears here in, in Titus. When the, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, there it is. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So do you want to be a good person? Do you want to, be, to live a useful productive life, you must be born again. You have to be regenerated. It doesn't come naturally. There are just, the concept of being born again, you find that in a number of different places, but the word regeneration, I think there are only two places in the New Testament where you find that word. Here in Titus, in the verses we're looking at right now, but the other place is in Matthew's gospel when uh, Jesus says, he talks about the regeneration of the universe. It, it, listen to what he says. It's in the regeneration when the Son of Man sit, shall sit on the throne of his glory. You who followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or, or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There's going to be a great reversal when Jesus comes back. We might say, come the revolution. Jesus says, come the regeneration. The first will be last and the last first. So you see, this concept of regeneration it, it applies to us as individuals, but it's also a much, it's a cosmic regeneration that we need to think about too. And how those two things fit together. Sometimes we talk about urban regeneration, don't we? Uh, renewing the inner, the inner city, you know, by, by pulling down the slums and, and building new housing. But you know what happens. If you put the same people back in that housing, the same kind of graffiti appears on the walls, the same kind of social problems reappear. You can't change people by changing their environment. And you can't change the environment without changing people. And that's God's great plan for the universe. He plans to regenerate the universe and renew all things. How? By regenerating people like us, one at a time, one by one. 
That's what the new covenant's all about. That's what he promises to do. In the new covenant, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God, they, they stuffed up big time, didn't they? They kept breaking the covenant. They were in covenant with God. But they kept breaking the covenant. They worshipped foreign gods. They, they, they profaned God's name among the nations. And, and God sent them into exile, just as he had promised to do in the book of Deuteronomy, if they broke his covenant. And then God kept sending them prophets who repeatedly warned them about the dangers that they were entering into by breaking God's covenant. And then in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah as well, in Ezekiel 36, he promises a new covenant. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'll clean you from all your impurities and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. He promises, that's the promise of the gospel, isn't it? That is the new covenant. It's what God promises to do for us. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel who knew the Bible inside out and back to front. The man with the reputation. Nicodemus, everybody looked up to Nicodemus and Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus, for a clever man, was a bit stupid at this point. He said, what, what do you mean? How can a man get into his mother's womb again and, and be born all over again? Is that what you're talking about? Nicodemus, you're the teacher in Israel. You should know about these things. You should know about the new covenant. You should know about God's promise of a new heart and, and a cleansing of the spirit. You should know about that. That's what I'm talking about. You need to be born again of water and of the spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new, behold, the new has come. We should never underestimate or trivialize the new birth. It's on a par with the creation of the world. What's happened to you if you're a Christian is on a par with the creation of the world. God said, let there be, and there was. And if you're a Christian, God said, let there be, and you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Perhaps, you know, the only born-again person you can think of is Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. <laughs> He's a kind of a caricature of a, of a born-again Christian, isn't he? The goofy-looking guy with the moustache and the thick glasses and the green sweater. Uh, He's uh, the Simpsons' neighbor, the born-again Christian. He's a caricature. He's obviously been created to uh, represent, kind of in America, anyway, modern-day kind of evangelical Christianity. And, and for many people growing up with the Simpsons, uh, he's, the, he's, the, um, uh, he's the Christian that they know the best, the one whose life they see the most. And, and whether they like it or not, not every one of us and whether we like it or not, not every one of us is, is subtly being tarred with the same sickly brush every time he appears on the screen. He's a figure of fun. He's a caricature. But, but as Homer Simpson once put it, if everyone were here were more like Ned Flanders, there'd be no need for heaven. We'd already be there. That's quite a backhanded compliment, I think, don't you? That's quite an affirmation. What does it mean to be born again? What is regeneration? In the philosophy department in, in, in Hobart in the university back in the 90s, uh, they, they introduced a course 
in time travel. That's very interesting. What are they going to do with that? Is expecting to turn up in the lecture theater and there'd be the TARDIS would be there down the front or the DeLorean, you know, car. Unfortunately, it was the philosophy department and not the engineering department. <laughs> they were just talk, tossing around the idea and talking about that, uh, time travel. Well, there's a sense in which regeneration is time travel. It is back to the future, except that you don't go, you don't go there, it comes to you. The future is brought into your present when you're born again, and you get to taste the powers of the age to come. The life of God in the soul of man. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just believing certain things and dotting certain I's and crossing T. No, it's the life of God in the soul of man. The age to come has come into your life. That's huge. In the gospel, God calls me to live the life of the age to come in this present evil age. I'm a new person in an old world. I'm to live a regenerate life in a degenerate world. I become a whinging pom, in other words. You know what a whinging pom is, don't you? I'm Welsh, so I'm not a whinging pom. But I had, a, I had a, an English guy come and work with me in Hobart back in the 90s, and he was a whinging pom. He's a great bloke, but he was a whinging pom. Uh, the first thing he said when he arrived in Hobart was, they don't know how to make a decent cup of tea in Australia. <laughs> and he had, his, he had his pockets stuffed with extra tea bags. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's what a whinging pom is. You know, it, it's, it's not like England. You know, they know how to make a cup of tea there. <laughs> I wanted to be like that here in Australia. But we're all whinging poms if we're born again, aren't we? Every time we say the Lord's Prayer, that's what we're praying for, that it may be here on earth as it is in heaven. We're, we don't, we're not happy about the way things are in this world, in this life, in, 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 in this society. We want things to be different. We want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we pray, we're whinging. We're whinging about the way things are, aren't we? And it's, it's God's Spirit who's, who's produced that in us. How does he do this? You notice he, he says he does it in us by the Holy Spirit whom he pours out upon us copiously, generously. I'm sure you've heard about the, uh, the 12 uh, labors of Hercules in Greek mythology. You know, he's given 12 tasks to do by the king. And, and task number five was to clean out the Augean stables. There have been thousands of cows living in those stables. Uh, for, for many years, and they'd never been, well, actually, they had never been cleaned in 30 years, apparently, but Hercules was told to clean them completely in a single day. And to do so, he very cleverly diverted the course of two rivers that flowed into the stables, sweeping out all the muck, all the filth. And that's what God promises to do for us in the gospel. There, there is a river that flows from the throne of grace, and God sends it coursing through our lives to make us clean. Matthew Arnold, uh, who is the headmaster of rugby school, defines God as a power not ourselves making for righteousness. It's a very inadequate definition of God. We would want to say a lot more than that. The Bible says a lot more than that. Of course it does. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty good description of, I think, regeneration. 
Because when we're born again, that's exactly what happens. Our power, not ourselves, making for righteousness, comes into our lives. How do you get from verse 3 into verse 8? You can't, you can't get from verse 3 into verse 8. But God can get you there by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. He regenerates us by His Spirit. He does that in us. The second thing you notice here is this in verse 7. He justifies us by His grace. Shouldn't confuse those two things, regeneration and justification. Uh, regeneration is something God does in us, as I've just said. Justification is something that God does for us. Uh, I haven't seen much of this here in, um, in Australia, I don't think in Sydney or Sydney, not in Hobart, but in, in the UK they started to, get, to improve the traffic flow. They've done some, some ridiculous things since I left. Uh, I wouldn't want to go back and drive in London anymore. You have to pay huge toll fees to just even go into the city. But they, they started introducing what they call the, these experimental roundabouts. It's like a dinner plate in the middle of the road. And you could even just drive over it without realizing they have done that. Uh, but it was meant to slow down the traffic. And uh, th there was, you, th as you approach these little dinner plates in the road, these experimental roundabouts, there was a, there'd be a, a sign warning you that one was coming up. And then the sign would say, um, do not enter unless your exit is clear. Well, that's justification. The moment I enter, the moment I trust in Jesus Christ, the moment I take him to be my Lord and Savior, that moment my exit is clear. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that right? I'm exonerated. The moment I trust him, I'm acquitted, I'm absolved, I'm approved, I'm accepted in the beloved. That's justification. And again, it's back to the future, isn't it? The verdict of the last day is brought into the present. By faith in Christ, I am declared not guilty. That means I don't have to go through life, you know, wondering how things are going to turn out. He loves me. He loves me not. Have I done enough? Have I got enough good works stashed up for him to accept me at the end? No, no. The verdict's already in, my friends. The verdict that God is going to pronounce on your life on judgment day is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're trusting in him. And that frees me up to live a useful and productive life. William Wilberforce was a very useful and productive man. Uh, he's uh, the man who lived, he lived a life full of good works, didn't he? He's the man, of course, who, humanly speaking, was responsible for the abolition of the slave trade. But he did lots of other really good things as well. He introduced so many good social reforms that improved uh, the lot of people living in the UK back there in the 18th century. The interesting thing is this, he only wrote one book in his lifetime, and it wasn't on social reform, it was on the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works. That's William Wilberforce. Matt Perman in Christianity Today writes, Wilberforce realized that the way to produce a life of good works and social reform is not to focus on good works and social reform, but on the source of those good works, which is the gospel. How do I get from verse 3 to verse 8? He regenerates me. He justifies me. So imagine, you know, uh, two students getting married. 
All that I have, I share with you. What do they have? A hex debt. An overdraft at the bank. <laughs> they share the fact that they have nothing. And when I'm married to Christ by faith, when I put my trust in him, all that I have is his. And all that he has is mine. That's justification. I've got nothing to contribute to my salvation except the sin that I need to be saved from. And guess what? He takes that all upon himself and bears it away at the cross. And his perfect righteousness, his beautiful, winsome holiness, he wraps around me like a cloak so that when God looks at me now, he sees me, not in my sin, but in his Son. I'm accepted in the Beloved. Christ sees me now in Christ. That's justification. And that takes place, doesn't, that takes place not in here, not in my experience. It registers not on the central nervous system. It doesn't cause all kinds of electrical pulses up and down your spine. No, no, it, it doesn't something that you experience. It, 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 it registers in the courts of heaven the moment you trust in Jesus. You're declared righteous. You know what the verdict's going to be on your life. On the last day, that verdict is brought into your presence and you're freed up to live usefully and productive lives. The hymn writer puts it like this, uh, and unfortunately, we, we tend to kind of modernize some of our hymns, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as we do it carefully. <laughs> I, well, we all know that hymn, don't we? I dare not trust my sweet... On Christ the solid rock I stand. And there's a verse where it says... I dare not trust my sweetest frame. I, I noticed in some churches I go to now, they've changed that because they don't know what this hymn writer is talking about. And so they, I dare not trust my, my closest friends, <laughs> which is pretty lame, I think. <laughs> what, what does this hymn writer mean? He says, I dare not trust my sweetest frame. It's just a quaint way of saying, I don't trust my feelings. I, I don't trust the way I feel about myself, even if I'm having a good day, even if I feel really spiritual and if I feel that the Lord is very close to me. Even if I feel good about myself, that is shaky ground. That is sinking sand. I dare not trust that. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So how do you get from verse 3 into verse 8? God regenerates you by his spirit. That's something that happens and, and is happening inside you. God justifies you. And notice it's, it's grace, not works. Verse 7, he justifies us by his grace. And see what it says in verse 5. Not because of righteous things that we have done. When our kids were young, they, they wanted a cat. We're not cat lovers. They, they kind of, cats look after themselves, so we didn't mind too much when we eventually get caved in. And, uh, but... Um, Cats, we, we, we call, we, we're not very original, we called the cat Tazzy, because we lived in Tasmania. <laughs> but we should have called him Spico. Because, you know, a cat, he used to kind of rub his, rub his fur against people's legs, and he would look like a really friendly little cat, and then he'd bite their ankles. <laughs> and like most cats, you know, um, he would bring disgusting, vile, stomach-churning things into the house and deposit them on the, on the rug in the, in the lounge or even worse, in the bed. And uh, 
Uh, no doubt, now, I don't know what goes on in the mind of a cow. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a cow? I'm not sure whether he was trying to torment us or impress us. I suspect he was trying to impress. Look what I've got. And you know we do the same with God, don't we? When we try to impress him with our good works, with our religiosity, with our, the things we do at church and all the rest of it, we try to impress him. And, and you know, the prophet Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in his sight. Menstruous cloths, literally, that's what he says. Our good works are stomach-churning to God. Well, we think pretty good about it. We think, we, we think you know, we, we, we think, well, this will impress him. He doesn't. David Dixon, who was one time principal of the New College in Edinburgh, said this. He, says, he said, I have taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've flung them together in a heap, and I've fled from them both to Christ. Have you done that? Your bad deeds won't save you. There's no controversy about that. There's no argument about that. We all know that, don't we? Your bad deeds won't save you, but neither will your good deeds. Have you, have you really understood that? Fling them both together in a heap and run to Christ. He regenerates us. The power of the age to come brought into the present, brought into your present experience. What a wonderful thing. He justifies us. The verdict of the last day pronounced in the present. In the present. And then lastly, thirdly, he gives us a future and a hope, doesn't he? When it, look what it says in verse 7 again. He makes us heirs, having the hope of eternal life. See, that's what makes life meaningful. That's what gives purpose and significance to, to everything that we do and say. The hope of eternal life. It, it's the great, greatest need that human beings have. Especially in today's world. Dostoevsky said, to live without hope is to cease to live. The hope of eternal life. Do you have, that's not whistling in the dark, hoping for the best. That's not a forlorn hope. It's the hope of eternal life. George Bernard Shaw is reported to have said on his 90th birthday, you know, George Bernard Shaw was not a Christian, he was an atheist. And he was, he's reported to have said this on his 90th birthday, our conduct is influence not as much by our experience as by our expectation. Now, um, I suspect he meant that as an excuse. I, I mean, it may be doing him an injustice, but by all accounts, he was a cantankerous old man, not easy to live with. <laughs> and probably one of his uh, relatives had told him, you ought to know better at your age. <laughs> and this was his answer. Our conduct is influenced not so much by our experience. Yeah, I've lived a long time. I've got a lot of life experience. But my conduct is not influenced so much by my experience as by my expectation. And what have I got to look forward to at the age of 90? I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in afterlife. He had nothing to look forward to. And therefore, he had no reason to live well. But you do, don't you? We do. Whether we live to be 90 or not, we have a future and a hope promised to us by the God who does not lie. And it's not a forlorn hope. It's a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
and sealed to us by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So we've got every reason to live well, don't we? Every incentive to get out of verse 3 into verse 8 and to live useful, productive lives. So there you have it. This is the truth that leads to godliness. Sound doctrine leads to godliness. These are the truths that lead to godliness. Regeneration, justification, glorification. George Whitfield preached 200 sermons on this doctrine, you must be born again, and someone said to him, why do you keep preaching the same talk? Why do you keep preaching on that verse, you must be born again? And Whitfield said, you because you must be born again. And uh, he, so he preached regeneration, he preached the new birth. And, and it, it was that message that transformed England and America in the 18th century. While France was having a bloody revolution, England was in the midst of a powerful revival. And what, was, what brought about that revival? It was doctrine. It was sound doctrine. It was healthy doctrine. It was the new birth. It was justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It was the hope of eternal life. Those are the truths that were being preached. Uh, as you know, I, I, I come from Wales, and Wales is the land of revivals, and there's a rich, rich history of revival in Wales. The, the, the 1904 revival wasn't as great as, as all the other revivals before it, but it transformed Wales. And Wales became known as the land of the white gloves. Do you know why? Because when the magistrates have no, no cases to try, they put on white gloves. And during the height of the revival, so many people were converted that there were no criminal cases to be tried in Wales. Because of the truth of the gospel that led to godliness, led people to live useful and productive lives. Do you see? Crete was a hard-drinking, rough-edged culture. Most people were spoiling for a fight most of the time. There was looting and stealing. There was no respect for law and order. The kind of thing that we're seeing right now on our television sets in the cities of Australia, young kids roaming the streets with knives, breaking into homes, stealing cars, 12-year-olds. Tribal warfare. The unraveling of the, the multicultural Australia that we're so proud of. And the total failure of secular humanism to fix the problems. So many today are concerned about that, right, rightly so, the coarsening of our culture. And the decline in moral standards. And some advocate the teaching of Christian values in schools. Others want to place, replace scripture with ethics. But you can't have Christian values without Christ. You can't have Christian values without Christian doctrine. Ultimately, neither education or legislation can change people's behaviors. Australians need to hear the gospel. Our kids need to, to know the scriptures in school. They need to hear these grand old gospel truths. They need to know the... Well, Colin McCallan's got a, a song about this, isn't he? The... Uh, the uh, I can't say, I can't remember the title of the song, but it's all about the eons, isn't it? The red, the red regeneration, justification, glorification. Roy Hattersley was a, 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 I'm finishing with this. He was a former deputy prime minister of Britain. He, he grew up in uh, Yorkshire. Uh, he was from a Methodist background. I think he uh, may have even been a lay preacher with the Methodists. And he became a, 
uh, a Labour MP and then eventually became the Deputy Prime Minister of, of Britain for a time. He's written a couple of really, really good biographies actually, very well researched biographies about, he's got one on John Wesley and the Methodists, it's one of the, it's very readable, very well researched, very fair to Wesley and the Methodists. He's not a Christian. He's written another one about uh, William Booth and the Salvation Army. A great book, really, really well, well worth getting hold of and reading. And, uh, and he, in that book he says this, he says, it ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Now I think a lot of people are there, aren't they, in Australia? They can see the value, a lot of the, the, the so-called big name atheists, people like Jordan Peterson and Tom Holland and people like that, they understand that yeah, we, need, we need what Christianity can give. We don't need one Christ. He says it ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Or better still, he says, to take Christianity a la carte. That is, you can pick and choose which bits you, you, you find acceptable and you can just discard the others. And, yet, and then he says, yet men and women like me, and he, he would identify himself as a, as a Christian socialist, uh, a socialist with Christian values. He said, yet men and women like me cannot, who, who cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles we don't go out with the Salvation Army at night. The only possible conclusion, he says, is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me, he says. The truth makes us free, but it has not made us as admirable as the average captain in the Salvation Army. <laughs> see, even unbelievers can see that. The truth gospel truth that leads to godliness. Let's pray.